welcome to the Hadassah Collective podcast. I'm your host, Claire Marinan. The Hadassah Collective is a unique wellness-centered community created in and inspired by India, the birthplace of holistic health disciplines. The Hadassah Collective podcast brings together a carefully curated selection of my most trusted and inspiring innovators from every area of the health and wellness space. I invite my guests to freely share their gifts, their wisdom, their journeys, and their diverse points of view, discussing a vast range of topics, including shutdown and self-isolation strategies, integrated diet and fitness, yogic science, modern mental health, and holistic lifestyle, all to inspire you with relatable tools to help you consciously customize, support, and expand your life. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Vanessa Aubrey. She is a visual artist, an activist, and an Akashic Records reader. She is the founding artist and director of Coral Projects, the first underwater, 100% ocean-friendly, eco-contemporary art exhibition on a coral reef at a fish sanctuary in Jamaica. Her personal work has been exhibited all over the world in Asia, Europe, and the Americas. And Vanessa is also deeply passionate about energetic work, specifically focusing on sleep hygiene. As a sufferer of narcolepsy for many, many years, she has really developed a system to help people really tune into the deep-rooted causes of sleep apnea and narcolepsy and how anyone can actually just practice better sleep hygiene. So we're really focusing on that in this episode. We also delve in quite deeply to specific areas of trauma within her childhood that sort of triggered um, different areas of her narcolepsy and how she has navigated healing that and restoring that so that she can balance um, those aspects of her life. And she's teaching other people now how to do that too. And so it's really interesting talking to Vanessa because she's so energetically connected and she's so creative and it's really beautiful to see how psychology, energetic work and art has really helped her evolve and grow and heal. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the Hadassah Collective. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Claire. It's my true delight and pleasure. So I'm so excited to dive into um, some of the things, the really interesting things you've been doing with the Akashic Record readings and um, just your journey through narcolepsy and sleep hygiene. I think that this is really interesting and really impactful for people because it's it's really something that people struggle with and, and not necessarily with narcolepsy, but a lot of people struggle with good sleep hygiene. And it's so, so important for our overall health and our mental well-being. So um, why don't we just start with you telling me a little bit about how you got on this path and just describe your like early life to me. Where did you grow up and what did that time look like? And did any of that contribute to or shape your journey? Well, the short answer is for sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, in the South. Um, some people call it the uh, belt buckle of the Bible belt. Um, and I grew up in a divided family, whereas my parents divorced when I was around four uh, around religion. So my dad became a very intensely involved Jehovah's Witness, and that was sparked by my birth. 
he decided when I was born that he wasn't living the kind of life that he needed to be living to be responsible for somebody else. And he was a doctor working like full time. You know, they had a country club membership. I guess they, it, it was we, I just don't remember it. Um, and my mom was just like, no, this is not what I signed up for. And they just butted heads. It was just immediate war. Um, and so I was the battleground and the prize being fought over. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very difficult (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. So I would bounce, you know, back and forth between two households that were completely misaligned and had like down to the smallest, what I wore on a daily basis or what school activities I would participate in level of disagreement about how I should be raised. Um, and they both thought that to serve my best interest, they should fight for their version of what my life should be instead of thinking like, oh, maybe this child needs like a yeah. consistent, calm <laughs> circumstance. Um, so my narcolepsy symptoms began uh, in my early teens, around 13 or 14, around so the enduring stress and strain of living, you know, divided lives and in neither household, like being fully embraced as who I am. Mm. Um, and not because they didn't want to, but it, you know, I learned to hide who I was so that I could fit into these two worlds and be loved. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of <laughs> undoing in that, in that wind up toy. Um, yeah. So the narcolepsy kicked in around my aunt's death. Uh, she died suddenly in a car accident on New Year's day. And she, in 1994, she was, uh, like the, my one always super enthusiastic advocate, Mm. (laughs) like annoyingly. So, right. (laughs) It's like one of those doting, you know, aunts who are just, you're just like, okay, stop hugging me now, you know? <laughs> oh, I love them. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, you know, and I, I carried guilt around, like, not fully appreciating her when she was with me. Um, so she died. And then also my best friend, which was my dog. I know that may sound ridiculous to some people, but we got Sunny the, the month after I was born and we were inseparable. Like, I spent every day of my childhood outside singing in the backyard with her, you know? Um, So yeah, narcolepsy became this way that I escaped the ever spiraling chaos of the two households I lived in. My father was very well-intended, but very harsh and judgmental and nitpicking like on the smallest level Mm. um, because he thought he had to be perfect, right? He was projecting his wanting to make up for lost time of being imperfect and not being aligned with his true calling Mm. on, onto me. And then my mom was a drunk um, and not, not wanting to admit it. My stepfather didn't want to admit it. Nobody wanted to admit it, but me, you know? Um, And she and she was the kind of drunk where she didn't drink a lot. It was that a, a little drop of alcohol changed her entirely. 
Mm. She just became a different person. And, and that side of my family, we have Native American heritage, Cherokee line, and also Irish. Mm. And during the prohibition in America, our family ran a speakeasy in the basement. (laughs) So there's, you know, a lot of opportunity for alcoholism to trickle through my family on that, Mm. on that line. Um, yeah, so (laughs) in a nutshell, that's how the narcolepsy presented Mm. and I didn't know it until 2004 when I was diagnosed in 2003, when I had just graduated from college, like two years before I was working part, well, full-time in a law firm, but it kind of felt like part-time because they allowed me to work as much as it took to get my work done. And then I would work on my art practice, which was actually a pretty good deal for being a young artist. Yeah. Um, I had good health insurance and I, I drove home to Nashville. My dad sat me down he was like, look, we need to talk. I think you have narcolepsy. And I was like, Oh, like it had never occurred to me that I, that I had a sleep disorder, even though (laughs) I had been living all four symptoms that are listed in the DSM-4 and the DSM-5, there's a slight difference now in the diagnosis, but um, I have the cataplexy version of narcolepsy where you lose all muscle tone for a brief instant. So quick that for me, it's so quick that the other person, if I'm talking to someone, doesn't even notice it. Um, And it's triggered by an extreme emotion. So my extreme emotion is a combination of being nervous and finding something funny, mm. which is kind of a fun, wow. <laughs> weird combination. That's really awkward for first dates, right? It, oh, my God. <laughs> I, that's that's when it showed up, of course. Yeah. you know. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, did you see that? And the other person would be like, what are you talking about? Because they didn't notice it at all. Oh, wow. But I would lose vision temporarily and all my muscle tone. That's so interesting. Uh, so that's, I mean, 10 years before yeah. being diagnosed. So what did you think that was at the time? I didn't think. Yeah. I just, I was like, I'm tired. Yes, you know? in survival uh, mode. Yeah, exactly. My mm. body was just taking over, was taking the reins. And I wasn't in a place to acknowledge like any aspects of my life that created it. Um, cause I was, yeah, I was in survival mode from zero to, uh, well, maybe five to yeah, 19, 20. Wow. And then when I got the diagnosis, it was like, wow. Oh my God. It makes sense. You know, it makes sense. My whole life makes sense now. Mm. Wow. It was freeing. Yeah. Wow. And so tell me you've, you've always been artistic. You've always been into art. I've always appreciated art. Mm-hmm. I I actually growing up thought I would be a marine biologist. I fell in love with the ocean yeah. as a child. My dad's from Miami. My grandfather's from Miami. And we would snorkel on the coral reefs on the Keys. They had a house on Plantation Key. And it was just like absolute heaven. And it was the first place where I felt at home, mm. which might sound a little strange. <laughs> but no. with my head below the surface hovering around the coral rocks and watching the colors and the fish and the the movement. It just, I just felt alive in a way that I can't describe beyond feeling like, feeling like I was home. Interesting. Interesting. And, and the Akashic record reading now, I, 
I'm sure that it wasn't in its formal form until recently, but did you always have this this ability to sort of dial into um, to other realms and to receive to receive divine guidance? Yeah, How for did sure. That show up at, as, a, as a yeah, and person. I, sorry, <laughs> that's okay. How did that show up as a younger person? Yeah, uh, as a child, I remember um, being in my my bedroom in this house that felt like my house. Mm-hmm. It was the house we lived in from when I was about three to five or six. And I remember this distinct knowledge that if I were to look too long at something that I could make it move <laughs> with my, with my attention. Wow. Um, I've never really told anyone that before. Then I also had this intuitive connection to one of my best friends she broke her arm in sixth grade when she was at a different school and I knew that day that something was wrong and I like rushed home and I called her and I was like Liz are you okay she's like I broke my arm like I knew it (laughs) you know I knew something happened and then the ultimate one that scared the holy crap out of me was um after my aunt died that summer she had been living in the house that she grew up in and my dad grew up in with my grandparents because Hurricane Andrew had destroyed her home um, in, in Homestead in Miami, the Miami area in August of 1993. So she was living with them while her house was being rebuilt. And so all her stuff from high school and her current life were in that room still in the summer after she died. Uh, So we went down and visited my grandparents and my sister and I stayed in that bedroom. I woke up in the middle of the night and looked to my right and I saw in glowing white light the the bodice of a female figure. It was a full figure, but I looked at it so quickly and was so scared that I immediately closed my eyes and I was like, oh no, oh no, no. And I threw the sheet over my head. I was so scared. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to open my eyes and look through the sheet. And if I see that outline through the sheet, I'm just going to scream until one of my adults (laughs) enters the room. And I saw it through the sheet. And I screamed. My sister slept through the whole thing, didn't hear a word of it. And my grandmother came in a few minutes, took took her a few minutes to get in there. Um... But I had the most interesting realization as, you know, my gifts have opened up during the pandemic that um, I thought, I always thought that I had seen her, like a version of her, but the figure didn't fit her figure. She had, when she was younger, she had modeled, but as she got older, she was quite overweight actually. And, but she had all these dresses for like smaller sizes in her closet. So I thought I saw like an aspirational version of her form. But I realized that I time traveled to myself. That was me that I saw because I had a, I did a vision and in a meditation where I was, you know, doing the TBM work that we do, the TBM magnetic work. And I was looking down on that version of myself, reprogramming <laughs> that experience and realized that I was looking through the perspective of that figure. Wow. Yeah. So those are some of the... That's a lot. That's so good. That's so interesting. Because I was always just wondering, I mean, 
now I think that, you know, spiritual giftings are quite cool almost or definitely accepted, yeah. you know, yeah. but in, you know, a long time ago, it wasn't. And I'm just wondering yeah. how you felt about that, um, sort of knowing yeah. that you had these intuitive gifts and, um, you know, what to do with them or were you scared of them or, you know, how did you feel around them? I was absolutely frightened. I was terrified because also remember I'm being raised as a Jehovah's witness yeah, and, um, with love, with absolute love. But you know, the messaging is like anything like this is the devil's work. And like, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to, you're not going to burn in hell because they don't believe in that, but they do believe that then you just won't live in paradise forever with all your other family members who are going to be there, <laughs> which is also like quite yeah, sad. That's a lot um, to put on you. Sad for me, sad for my parents. And I, I had no idea what I was experiencing. And, you know, my dad didn't really have the bandwidth to really help me talk through it. Yeah. Uh, so I had no one to talk to about it with. Mm. and and then and then like there would be moments in my life when like people would pop into my life that could talk to me about that stuff and I would just be freaked out (laughs) I would just be terrified because my 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 story around being loved involved not that not being an aspect of who I am yeah yeah to shut that down to fit in with what your family expected yeah so that kind of segues really nicely into my next question of what do you think the hardest things you've had to overcome have been, um, you know, you're now a flourishing artist, you know, with all these amazing projects and um, you're now an Akashic record reader and you're even coaching people in sleep hygiene. And so you really have sort of ascended past these limitations and these things that you found so hard when you were younger. What do you think is the, the hardest thing that you've had to overcome? The hardest thing was something I didn't even know was happening, um, which I did Landmark Forum about eight or nine years ago, and that's something they talk about, what you don't know that you don't know, (laughs) and looking for what you don't know that you don't know. I had zero self-love happening from my probably late 20s into my late 30s. And I had no idea. Um, And this is the root of like the massive rock bottom and love that I experienced in January 2018 when I was crying for four days straight at my kitchen table. (laughs) Um, And and then I started doing self-love meditations with this amazing lady, Agnes Vivarelli, who has these really beautiful, tender compassionate self-love meditations for free on YouTube. And as I began to do them, I realized that I was like below the surface. Like I was so far down, buried in the ground, low in my self-love and had no idea. And that, you know, that was really the source of, yeah, all my struggles. And my struggles have been largely financial and, and amazingly, I've been able to do incredible things on very little resources <laughs> because mm-hmm. I always believed that I could. I, my friend once told me that I was the richest poor person she had ever met <laughs> because I like 
you know, travel the world with art projects everywhere and yet, you know, struggled to pay my rent. <laughs> like, how is that possible? Yeah. Um, so it's really, you know, belief systems, but mm. yeah, self-love and, and then like crawling <laughs> like tooth and nail out of the, the ground. I, I had this vision in a meditation with a coach last summer, a beautiful woman, Carrie Van Kirk, of myself crawling from inside a crevice of an earthquake up towards the surface of the earth that had been scoured and scourged. It just was like all ash and dark, like dark, rich soil, but nothing else on the surface of the planet. And I was crawling up, peeking my head <laughs> over the surface to see what was there, to see if it was safe to, you know, invest in myself and love myself and really accept myself as I am. Wow. I mean, yeah. I think that that is actually, that is actually really the journey for everyone. Mm -hmm. But it just, I think it looks really different for, for everyone. And I, I do think it depends on your upbringing, whether you're encouraged to be yourself. And I think that that's something that's definitely shifting in parenting in more modern times is, is rather than, you know, I've birthed this child into the world and, you know, it's my job to give them everything that I've learned so that they can succeed or be happy in life. And now it's more of a perspective of this like brand new soul is coming into the world and what are they here to bring the world, you know, and, and yeah. nurturing that out of them. And I've really seen that in a shift in parenting styles, definitely. Um, but the self-love piece is a really difficult thing, I think, for some people because it is it really is about acceptance and being like you know this is me and this is enough you know and this is this is what i've been gifted and this is what i meant to be in the world and um yeah and being able to really own that i think is so important feel safe in it mm, yeah that's my big <laughs> one of my big hurdles i really love what you said around parenting being refocused and i think mm -hmm. Um, Giselle Buntishin, she had a really beautiful interview where she talked about like the way that each one of her children, the three children need to be parented differently yeah. and that she's here as a guide for them to grow into their best version of themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to right. Molding someone you're, you're guiding them. Yeah. That's a, a really beautiful analogy. Yeah, and I think it's a really profound shift. And I, I don't think that previous parenting styles, it came from a space of wanting to equip the child with everything that they need to to be happy and, and function in the world. But I yeah. think that that came at a, at a cost of their true expression of self as well. And so I, yeah, I think it's great to totally. see that shift that we've evolved past that. Totally. And also the energetics of the world, as you and I talk about, have, mm -hmm. are changing. Yeah. Like, I really love thinking about that in terms of money. Um, as you know, I love Molly McCord, yeah. <laughs> the intuitive astrologer. And she had a really beautiful series on star seeds from earlier this year. And in one of the episodes, she talks about the energetics of money shifting to love. Mm. So where, whereas when you invest in the things that you love, yeah. then also money comes towards you. Money will be attracted to love moving forward. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a really profound shift in our world. Yeah. Yeah.
Incredible. So tell me, how did you overcome your self-doubt? Because you really are, you know, doing the things that are really you and yeah. um, that maybe were not accepted by your family, becoming an artist and not a doctor or a lawyer, yeah. um, you know, reading the Akashic Records. Um, you know, what did that look like? How did you overcome that self-doubt? Because there must have been moments where you're like, they're, they're right and what I'm feeling is wrong. There must uh, have been those moments where you questioned yourself. How did you overcome that? Well, it's interesting because I don't, maybe other, other artists can relate to this. When you know your path, you know your path. Even when you don't have self-love, you still see your path. Hmm. And I just always knew that I was a creative person meant to have a creative journey and that my path as the black sheep of two families uh, was going to look different than absolute everybody, absolutely everybody else that I knew. Um, that was always clear to me. And I always, it's weird because like, I've always believed in myself inside of me, but I haven't always believed in other people's ability to believe in me. Yeah. So it's like, the language around it that sits with me the clearest is that I'm too complicated to be supported. Like mm. that I'm a very complex, interesting, fascinating person with all these skills and capacities and missions, but the world around me doesn't know how to engage with that. Mm. And that also relates to my being outside of time or feeling sometimes that I'm behind too far behind or too far ahead. Yeah. 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 yeah, so it's been more a struggle around how do I show other people who I am authentically and from a place of not only knowing and believing in myself, but knowing and believing that they can understand me too. Yeah, yeah. And that in your own self-expression, like it's almost like you you know the things that you're here to bring, but you're not sure that the world values them. Yeah. Accurate? yeah. Yeah. Or, or that like it values that like individuals value them, but the system as a whole, does that value it? And, and how do I fit into the economics of the world of, mm. you know, of the, with these gifts, because I, I chose or chose or like became, um, or was already, uh, an artist meaning that I'm in a career path that doesn't have a minimum wage. It doesn't have a guaranteed wage. You can theoretically work your entire life and never make a penny mm -hmm. on your work. The starving artist concept, right? Yeah. So, and the, we have many examples from history of people that have lived that very existence. Um, and yet I know that that's not my path to live in obscurity and, and slave away unseen. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are many examples also of, um, of artists that, are, that do not walk that path as well. I think that's so, true. That's true. But yeah, you're right. It is that, but it is a kind of, you know, stereotype that it's like, you know, be slaving away, creating all this amazing art that's only really appreciated like a hundred years after your passing kind yeah. of thing, you know? So yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. And so describe, and also, oh, yeah, so there's also the thing around like visual artists don't get paid to show their work, mm. you know, in every other creative arts field, 
there's some modicum of income that comes. Even on Spotify, they give the musicians 0. 0.00001 penny, right, per yeah. play or something like this. But for visual artists, that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. It's a, it's a tough road to navigate, I think. And I think I, you know, I think I chose that. Yeah. Like purposefully without consciously knowing I chose it purposely, but yeah. But do you think also like your, your family's, um, I'm not going to say misapproval because I don't, or non-approval of it, but I think it's more a misunderstanding of why you would want to go down that road because it is tough. There isn't a, you know, a very defined career path in art, you know, it's, it's really carving your own way. But do you think yeah. that that sort of like maybe lack of understanding from your family spurred you on to, to keep pushing forward in that? Well, you said something to me that makes me want to say yes to that question <laughs> a few weeks ago, um, which was that if I was comfortable in my family and home life in Nashville, I might not have ever been inspired enough to leave. Because yes. I do, I do deeply love all of my family members and I'm, I miss them so much mm -hmm. during, especially during this pandemic time. I, I like to go home three or four times a year. And of course I haven't been home in over a year and a half now. Um, so there's something around, you know, yeah, that yeah. discomfort and that total chaos pushed me out of the nest and pushed me to Charleston where I went to undergrad and, and discovered my artistic talent and stepped into becoming an artist. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's all a matter of what time and point in perspective you look back at an experience, right? And, yeah. you know, Absolutely. 10 years ago, it's like I was still in trauma around everything, yeah. but now I can look back and, and really appreciate the four adults who participated in raising me. You yeah. know, it reminds me of a conversation I recently had with my stepfather where I, I was able to find my true sincere gratitude for his role in my life. And, you know, he was not a great stepfather. He was a great father to my sister. He was a great husband to my mother, but it, it was not pleasant for me. Yeah. And I know, you know, I was able to then step into looking back at his experience and what he was thrown into. Like suddenly, you know, he's fallen in love with a woman who is a, a mortal enemy with her ex-husband who she raises a child with. You know, that's terrible. Uh, so everyone in our family was impacted, you know, by that, by that battle, that, you know, decades long battle. Yeah. Um, and he stuck with my mom and he's, you know, he didn't abuse me physically, right. He didn't yeah. take it out on me in ways that he could have. And, and instead, you know, he's become someone that I look to for an example of how I don't want to end up creating mm -hmm. my life. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that role. He's had to play the villain. I cast him in the role of villain in my life. Yeah. And and I've learned so much from interacting with him and um, 
living in parallel. We actually have the same birthday. He's 30 years older than me (laughs) to the day. Um, Yeah. So I'm, I was able to tell him that I was so thankful for that and, and really tap into feeling it and meaning it. And, you know, he, he very much appreciated that and said that actually there were conversations like this. He had wished he had with people before they died. Mm. Uh, And I think it, you know, it was a really healing experience for both of us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, you know, I think as children, we, you know, and it's very natural to do this is that we don't look at our caregivers as, as humans, you know, we don't have that capacity yet. We see them as, as something, I don't know, higher than us or, um, you know, when I'm older, I'll be perfect kind of thing. You know, as children, we have that image of adults as, um, you know, got it all together. When in reality, yeah. they're living their own lives. They're, they're going through stuff as well um, and trying to raise children in the best way that they can. So, yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's great when you can come through something like that and have that perspective and recognize hang on a second, what you were in was not easy either, you know, and, um, and have that compassion. I think that's incredible. And so describe some wellness modalities or spiritual practices that have really supported your journey. Well, I think the first one was really sitting with yeah, my lack of self-love and mm. and examining the roots of that. So that started with meditation that I began in on I think it was January 2nd in um 2018 and that led me to the orgasmic manifesting program by Lorianne King, which is super fascinating. Mm. Um and then that led me to to be magnetic. So the neuropathway reprogramming through self-hypnosis and journaling uh, and uncovering shadow and inner child wounds and stories around money and stories about, you know, all the stories that we make up to explain why our life has gone the way that it has gone. Um, And then I think one of the biggest um, spiritual tools that I've used was, you know, a bit of an accident, which is being isolated, being away from people uh, during this pandemic. Um, Yeah. You know, I, I think that quietness really allowed me to go into myself and, and yoga also which really allows me to release the tension and the parts of my body that store these um, unhealthy programs that my body is running. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think it is really important to go and, and have a look about uh, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and what certain things mean about us that we've made things mean about us. Yeah, you know, um, certain situations. And I think it's really important to go back, like you said, about inner child healing, to go back and look at those moments where we we decided something about ourselves based on how somebody else treated us, how something worked out, 
whatever and go back and look at those things with adult eyes and yeah. um, be able to release and have some understanding around those times and be able to release that story. I think that that is, that's one of the, the biggest things for me as well is um, or where I see the most, you know, profound shifts is um, is when I kind of go back to those stories and sort of untie them, I think, and, um, and, okay. and release them. So that that's really, really interesting. And yes, we both love to be magnetic work yes. and the meditations and the journal prompts um yeah thank you Lacey yeah. <laughs> thank you Lacey I'm not sure she listens to the podcast but yeah thank you for the gift of that um I found her the structure of her workshops and things like that really really useful and um yeah tell us also so tell us what does your daily routine look like so you've mentioned a few different modalities are these things that you practice every day or are they things that you pick up when you feel like you need to? I'm going to go with both <laughs> because yeah. it is every day that I need to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I My days start in an ideal world with um, waking up earlier and earlier every day so that I have enough time so I don't feel the pressure of time yeah. to you know start being accountable to other people. Um, having a glass of lemon water, taking a shower, and going immediately into the Akashic Records. And then um, I look at what I need to do for the day. I try not to get into that yet. I try to do some yoga first. At least half an hour makes a world of a difference for my my body and then my mental health. And um, and I eat. Um, and then I'm I'm also constantly thinking about and this is maybe a bit of a, an Achilles heel, but like, how can I next best act in line with my healing journey? Like, what's the next thing I can do to get even farther? It's like that, you know, there's, it becomes a bit of a constantly fixing yourself thing, um, yeah. which I'm getting out of. Yeah. But you know, that's always on my mind. Like what's my, even when I'm, you know, working or whatever, like it always crosses my mind. Like what's the next thing I can do. And, you know, fortunately I trust the process a lot more now and I trust myself a lot mm -hmm. more now and I can, you know, but that's an interesting I, conversation I, to have, I think, because yeah. I do sometimes um, recognize that in the wellness world i think um wellness alternative spirituality world that it's always about fixing yourself and you know what's the yeah. next thing that i need to reprogram what's the next thing that i need to fix what's the next thing that you know i need to work on and it's you know i there's something about that that i don't find healthy um yeah. it's sort of it, it's also a, a sort of bypassing your life like it's not you know, okay. counting your blessings you're not you're not um, living in the now, which is something that is so widely sort of preached yeah. in the wellness world, because it's like, oh, as soon as, as soon as I heal those childhood wounds, then I'll be amazing. As soon as I, and it becomes like that. And I, I think it's really unhealthy. And I think there's a, there's a space also of this kind of puritanical perfectionism, I would yes. call it, in the wellness space that I just don't agree with. Like we're human. And we're meant to be human, you know, um, 
we're we're meant to go from angelic to you know the other yeah. end of the spectrum and and that's fine and i think it's about honoring all of those faces and all of those parts of ourselves you know so yeah it's like wanna... anti-self-love to be like a rigorous perfectionist yeah absolutely and it's like i've got to do my self-love practice today i've got to do myself i don't love myself i don't if i don't do my self-love practice today and it's just like yeah it's so it's so funny actually if you zoom out and think about it but um yeah yeah, i'm so i'm glad that you agree and have some flexibility as well because i really like to just tune in and see what what i need for that day you know, just my body going to move. And... Some days it's like more of a challenge to, you know, accept myself as I'm showing up. Mm. Um, but what I, a message I got recently in the Akashic Records was that actually aligning with allowing myself to be at peace in whatever version of the day I'm experiencing like allowing that to be perfect is the aligning with perfect timing is aligning with divine timing. And that time actually revolves around me. The things that are meant for me will not miss me because they realign in time and space according to where I am in time and space with myself. And so the more I can let go of the perfectionist tendency, the more I can embrace my inner peace, the more I'm uh, more quickly I'm, you know, aligning with what I'm calling it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm briefly interrupting this episode to bring you some information on one of my most favorite resources, the Kundalini Lounge. If you have been listening to this podcast for a little while, you will know that I'm a daily practitioner of Kundalini Yoga. I find it to be such a powerful practice to move stagnant energy through and out of the body using breath and sound and movement. And the Kundalini Lounge brings together some of the most experienced teachers in the industry. And they have put together an entire video library consisting of hundreds of videos for you to choose from. And there are specific videos that target ailments that you might be struggling with or wanting a specific outcome. And there are also different workshops as well that explain some of the dynamics in Kundalini Yoga on and off the mat. So it's an incredible resource to have, and they are inviting you to join their community for the first seven days for free. So you can register at kundaliniloungecom And after that, when you use the promo code Hadassah, you also receive an extra 20% off any membership type that you will choose. So I hope you enjoy this resource as much as I do and get a lot out of it. So let's talk about the Akashic Records for people who don't know. Why don't you give us a brief overview of, of what the Akashic Records are and the and what readings look like as well? Yeah. So I think I'm kind of an outlier on uh, this topic. I So the Akashic Records are this body of information that exists in all dimensions. So we exist in the three-dimensional plane and many of us are are aspiring and ascending into a 5D awareness, right? And then there's the seventh dimension, 11th, you know, and so on and so on and up and up. And the idea is that the Akashic Records hold information from all these dimensions. Mm. And so therefore it holds information across time and space for all creatures, everyone alive. And you can tap into 
your past, present, and future in the Akashic Records. A lot of people use them for uh, past life um, travels, like understanding who they were in past lives. Mm. And when I took a class on Akashic Records readings, I received the information from the guides that I had been in my records my whole life already. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Like, that explains a lot. And And that... who who are the guides in the Akashic Records? uh, Yeah. Well, each person connects with uh, a different set of guides. And depending on who you learn how to access them through, you're in a different... um, line of ascended masters so the person that i studied with maureen saint germain who has a wonderful class that i really enjoyed um the ascended masters that she connects with are uh the lord sanat kumara who is also known as the green man um the divine director and the goddess of liberty and when i go into the records now at least for the last like two weeks, they've been telling me also to add a few other energies mm-hmm. to that list for yeah. my own, um, my own guides. And yeah, I think, you know, some people, some people naturally already always connect with their guides and their record keepers mm-hmm. already. And other people struggle to connect with them. And for me, the Akashic records are a way to ground my uh, my gifts into the real world because yeah. I have very fantastical sleep experiences that you know that are visions and real and vivid where I touch taste feel uh, sense everything happening in my sleep state like I'm having an experience in real life including conversations with living and deceased people that I know and don't know <laughs> so that can become at least for me, pretty overwhelming because they're very intense experiences to where, and they played out in the real world too. Like I had a, I was taking a nap one day and suddenly I was in a vision meditation experience. I never quite have the right word for it um, with my ex. And I felt him tangibly with me in the bed, Mm -hmm. like touching me and kissing me and being intimate with me. Uh, And I had not seen him for, for many months. So I reached out to him and of course he had just been having a very vivid uh, experience in his imagination with me. (laughs) And, you know, I really get that we are all connected in that, in that plane, Mm. in that sphere, in those realms. Um, Yeah. And what could I answer that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What could people expect from an Akashic records reading from you? Does that yeah. mean that you have a really different approach to anyone that yeah. I've ever heard of, actually? Yeah. So the way that I'm doing readings now are what I'm calling mini Akashic Records readings, which is basically I get permission from the person, uh, which is their full name, their date and place of birth and where they currently live. And I go into the records myself. So in traditional Akashic records reading, I, I go into my records, quote unquote, and then ask my record keepers and guides if, I, if there's a message that I may relate to this person. 
And then my record keepers and guides connect with theirs and their higher self. And then we pull something out. <laughs> and um, funnily enough, it almost always relates to my journey on in my life, which I think is really interesting um, because they'll remind me of experiences in my life that they then ask me to tell the person after the reading is complete. Uh, so, so I receive the person's information, their payment, and then I wait for the record keepers and guides to tell me that it's their turn. It takes within a week typically to get a message for a person. And then I, um, I transcribe it in my journal and then I voice record it and send it to the person via email. So I've also started to do like three questions at a time. I'm kind of building up to full readings where we spend an hour and a half, you know, together live where we're in the records for, you know, most of that time. Uh, they, they don't want me to just jump into that immediately. They, they actually gave me this version which they told me to tell people that I invented. I feel weird saying I invented it, but then they're like, Vanessa, every good idea you've ever had, you've got from us anyway. So yeah, you invented it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so these, these many readings, you know, aren't, aren't done by anyone else. And um, they tell me that eventually other people will do these readings and that this is a gateway for other people to begin to understand how they connect to their own records, mm. which I think is really interesting. So eventually I'll do the full, the full readings that are live in person, but um, I'm working up to that. And the way that this showed up, I think is really interesting for me. I was upstate um, chasing waterfalls in upstate New York seeing a waterfall every day for a week, which was amazing. And I was going to visit a friend of mine, Jason, who uh, I hadn't seen in years. He's another artist and he was, um, he was attacked in like a queer hate crime in the, in 2016, twice in a row and received a very traumatic injury from it. Oh um, and I didn't really know the full details. I just knew that, you know, he was at home a lot and not really, uh, going out and, and I just happened to be near him. So I was like, Oh, I'm going to go, you know, I'll visit my friend. So I went into the records and that the day before, and I was just like, is there a message that I can relate to my friend? And they were like, yes, tell him that his archive is very important, that he needs to keep it in this place and like this in his house and that his masterpiece is coming, that he is still a valuable artist and that he shouldn't give up on himself. Oh, wow. And I thought like, he already knows that, right? Like he already knows he's a valuable art. I mean, I know he's a valuable artist, so he must know. So I called him the day before I saw him and I was like, Hey, I'm doing this crazy thing, which is how I kind of presented to everyone because I never know, you know, where they are on, on this journey of psychic ability. Yeah. Um, and he was like, Oh my gosh, I'd love to hear it. What is it? And I tell him, he was like, Vanessa today, this very day I've been moving my archive around my entire house, so frustrated, wondering if I'm even, if it's even worth keeping this stuff because I haven't made art in years and I feel so disconnected from, you know, this practice and I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And it brought him to tears. It was really beautiful. Wow. It was really profound. And so then I had a couple more messages come through for other people. And then they were like, okay, now you get to do this for total strangers. <laughs> 
Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's so amazing. So amazing. And tell me now about the um about the narcolepsy and sleep hygiene yeah. and what can people yeah. expect from a workshop that you present around sleep hygiene and how you've how you've overcome this? Yeah. So I've I approach narcolepsy as my superpower. I've turned it into something that I use to really see myself and see where I need to continue to look and where I can continue to work on accepting and, and revealing myself to the world and to the people that I know and love as who I authentically am. Because that's actually, you know, where it came from hiding, right? Like sleeping to hide and avoid the conflict of who I was compared to the, the systems and the situations that I was within. So um, I've been on, on a bit of a journey around protecting myself in sleep as well, because I've had very terrifying um, vision experiences where energies come to me and like try to have sex with me or try to enter me through my wrists or, uh, you know, are very menacing uh, and, and un unwelcomed <laughs> to oh, say the least. Terrifying. It was terrifying. And it, you know, Shaman Durek actually told me, he was like this, the reason that you have those experiences is because you are inviting them. And why do you think you're inviting them? And I was like, yeah, I get that. I, it's like me reminding myself that I have a bigger life experience that I'm not acknowledging yet. And so as I've begun to embrace my bigger experience as a human creature in this body and also an energetic body, yeah. I'm able to minimize those unpleasant experiences and really connect with like the energetic shifts in my apartment and the energetic shifts in my body and my being, and then adjust so that I maintain a, you know, copacetic, peaceful, <laughs> like room and sleep environment. So in the workshop, I talk about how to energetically clear yourself and your room mm. and create that same kind of peaceful environment. It involves um, mirror work, which has become very important in my life. I had no idea how powerful mirrors are. Um, but basically, you know, I've learned that no mirrors in your bedroom is the way to go. And if you have one, it should be at all times covered unless you're using it. it you know, so the moment that you're looking at it, you're, it's revealed and then you cover it right back up. And I just have one tiny mirror that used to be my grandmother's. It's like one of those makeup mirrors that flips back and forth, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just have a scarf draped over that. But I recently got rid of this huge mirror that was in my bedroom. And the energetic shift in my bedroom is just astronomical. It went from, you know, this is a room that I'm in to this is my second skin. Like this room is an extension of my body. Yeah. The mirror like had that much, <laughs> had that much going on. Wow. And so what is the reasoning behind that? They're like a portal or? Yes, exactly. Mm. They're energetic portals that also exponentially magnify. So wow. I've had visions where I was in my room. Often this is how it happens in my, in my sleep paralysis states that were traumatic, but also in my visions. I'm in, I'm in my bedroom, um, but 
the like horrific version is that it's flipped upside down and all red with like this obelisk coming down from the center of the ceiling. And it's like, you know, the horror version of my bedroom and like beings coming at me, like terrifying me basically. And I realized later that it, that was, you know, the reflection of my space in the mirror. And I traveled through the portal of the mirror. Um, it's been described like people that have this easy capacity to leave their bodies, uh, were often described as porous, which I think is an interesting analogy, mm. like with a, a porous stone where you just like come in and out of your being out of your body. Um, yeah. So I also help people troubleshoot whatever they're experiencing in their sleep states. Yeah. And I encourage, you know, crystals that are aligned and also like organic materials, not sheets that have poly materials in them and, yeah. you know, not nothing um, fake, fake. It's all real, but, you know, only natural fibers mm. um, is a big part of it. And is that, as well. is that to, is that for grounding? It's definitely grounding. Mm. It's also, yeah, I guess I, that's probably the simplest way to describe yeah. it. It's yeah. Because right with the invention of rubber, that's when humans stopped having their connection to the earth. Right. That's um, there's a movie called, I think earthing that talks about that where like the rubber on your shoes, uh, on your soles of your shoes, stop the ener energetic ions from the earth entering your body. Yeah. yeah. So silks and cottons and linens and wool. So lush. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who maybe doesn't have something like narcolepsy, but just wants to practice better sleep hygiene? So they yeah. cover the mirrors in the room. They energetically yeah. cleanse themselves and any other tips for, for good sleep hygiene? Yeah, let's see. I mean, using cotton, having cotton sheets and natural yeah. fabrics around you. And if you're having trouble like falling, I think, you know, it's like for each person, it's like, what's your problem and let yeah. problem solve it. But like, if you're having trouble falling asleep, for example, what are you doing the two hours leading up to sleep? Where is your phone when you're sleeping? Is it in your bed with you? Are you looking at it while you're going to sleep? You know, that's mm. not a great idea. Um, keep it at a distance. What's the lighting like in your bedroom at night? I have a red light bulb. I don't actually have any trouble falling asleep. That's a gift yeah. of narcolepsy. <laughs> I hit rim within like eight minutes of closing my eyes. Um, which for most people, it's multiple hours. But that red light, you know, it reduces the blue light level in the room and then allows your hormones to adjust to like the nighttime hormones, the sleepy time hormones. Because when the sun goes down, the blue light also goes with it typically. Mm. Of course, in our culture, we use blue light at all times. But yeah. I think the biggest thing is like, what's up with your phone? when you're going to sleep the two hours before you start to fall asleep. Yeah. And, and are you watching TV in those two hours? Because what you watch on TV, oh boy, that, that majorly impacts your ability to sleep. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it, it really does. And it's, it's such an interesting thing. Um, our addiction to television, you know, because it's, it's, I don't think people realize 
And even sometimes I, it's not that I don't realize, but I, I fully am aware that when we're watching TV, we are actually in a theta brainwave state. So our brain yeah. is so impressionable in that state. It's the same state as, um, you know, semi-hypnosis. And um, exactly. so it's so impressionable. I mean, I went through a time, I think earlier on in the lockdown where I was like, I've got to stop watching so much murder, you know, and it was like everything, <laughs> everything on Netflix was, you know, around solving murders and things like this. And I was just like, this can, because I know about, um, you know, neural reprogramming and things like that. I was just like, this cannot be good um, to do. So I think that that's a really, um, a really good tip to, to just be hyper aware of what you're taking in when you're scrolling through Instagram, when you're watching TV, it's really important because it actually does, um, you know, leave impressions in our psyche. I had to wean myself off of Special Victims Unit. <laughs> yeah, I love all those shows. I really I'm like Mariska Haggerty is like such an amazing actress and like yeah. so powerful. Yeah. So I always like kind of explained it away. Like I'm watching this empo this empowered woman, <laughs> you know, be a badass, but like actually, it's like completely horrific that entire show. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So who have been some major influences or sources of inspiration or mentors for you in your life? And they can either be in your real personal life or public figures. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to say, first off, uh, one of my teachers in high school, Mr. Kantz, he, he really saw my unique skill set and ability and my analytical process and my my wonderment. He told me one time, he said, Vanessa, you have a gift of wonderment. And in, in the future, some people might tell you that it's childish or childlike, but ignore that because it's actually vital to who you are as a person. And you want to hold on to that. People lose it as they get older mm. and it's very valuable. I think about that a lot. Um, and then my photo teacher from college, Michelle Van Paris, she helped me create my first solo show, um, which was actually related to my gifts. I, I sandwiched black and white negatives of these empty abandoned spaces throughout the Charleston area, which Charleston is one of the oldest cities in America. And also the city that most of the slaves that came to the America came through. Yeah. So talk about haunted places. And I, I would go into these abandoned buildings to face my fear of ghosts, but using the camera lens to protect myself because there's this amazing thing that happens when you look through a lens, you, you disconnect from the reality that you're in and it's a mediated experience as, mm. as the taker of image. Um, so you're suddenly, whatever you see in front of you, it's like, you're watching the TV version of it. It's not, you know, you don't, you don't experience it as a real experience in your body. So interesting. That's so, I so interesting. That. Yeah. I mean, I think it says a lot about our society now taking photos of every moment. Yeah. You know, and publishing yeah. those photos. It's like, are we really living them or are we experiencing them through Instagram? This is, yeah, this is the fad of like art becoming, you know, a selfie backdrop that's heartbreaking yeah. because art is about communication. It's about a living live dialogue between the creator and the, and the viewer and the back and forth. And every time you visit a piece, 
you're meant to have a new experience because you're a new person each time you visit the feast. So there's new information for you to gain from that dialogue. And if you're just standing in front of it and taking a selfie every time, you've completely lost the value of art. Yeah. It it devastates me um, to see see that, to be honest with you. Yeah, Um, absolutely. But at the same time, the like whole selfie rage, you know, catapults artists like Yao Kusama, who is another person that I absolutely adore and love. Um, it's, you know, catapulted her into a major, you know, a major artist known to, you know, she's a household name in, in a lot of houses, not every house. I wish it was every household that she's not Andy Warhol yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, but she's finally getting the respect and, you know, kudos she deserves in her late eighties and nineties. Um, and it's largely because her installation uh, with it's like a full room installation of mirrors with a, a a water floor and these little lights. So it's like an infinity room where you're just suspended in light. It's so beautiful, wow. but that created a selfie, you know, <laughs> selfie rage, rage. Mm-hmm. and people stand in line for hours to just be in that, in that box for, you know, 30 seconds to take a selfie. Um, but, but her whole point is around that that feeling of being suspended in infinity that that like completely terrifying and also completely freeing experience mm-hmm. of being just a being floating in space wow. yeah incredible yeah her work was really powerful yeah and what resources so, would you recommend that you think would be useful to our listeners like books or podcasts Instagram, YouTube channels, who do you think would be, would be useful to our listeners? Who do you love? Well, I do love expanded, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, which is Lacey Phillips podcast and, um, Molly McCord, like she's spot on for me for an astrologer, um, and her intuitive gifts. But, um, I also really love armchair expert with Dax Shepard. Okay. And, um, and Monica Padman, because what I love about them is that they're authentically themselves. They're curious naturally, and they just play off each other in this really sweet way and then have, you know, interesting conversations with major public figures, but it's not the same conversation that those public figures are having with the Today Show or, mm-hmm. you know, with some other, because they're coming from their authentic selves, who they are. And I think, you know, it's really about, for me, finding the voices that that are embodying their authentic yeah. self. Um, yeah. That's who you want to hear from. And a book that I highly recommend to absolutely everyone is um, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Um, it's a really beautiful story, like story-based narrative of these experiences that she has had and researched across America where racism has negatively impacted white people, which I think is something that we don't think about that, you know, there's, there's actually a loss for every human being when we act from a place of fear, scarcity and, um, and racist division. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. And um, so tell us what's next for you. What new projects are you working on? Tell us about Coral Projects. I'm dying to hear. Um, 
<laughs> like, oh, coral projects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I love that. Um, yeah, so I am working on coral projects, which is my underwater ecological ocean-friendly, entirely art exhibition on a regenerating coral reef in Jamaica at a fish sanctuary. And I've also adapted um, the project to to fit in other places. Like there's gonna be a version in New York as well, where we don't, we do have cold water corals here, but really the issue here is around oysters. So there'll be um, artworks that will be created as oyster reefs. Mm. So with coral projects, we're creating, you know, a hundred percent eco-friendly artworks made from sustainable materials that are sourced on the site in the place where the works are made and will live. And the idea is that the ocean life gets to take over these pieces and transform them. So that's like a true healing marriage between art and the underwater world. And I'm really committed to integrity on all fronts in this project. Like all the, all the works must be sustainable and eco-friendly. Um, everyone must be paid a fair, a fair wage for their labor and equal wages as well. Um, which is actually kind of a big concern in Jamaica because a lot of people will come, a lot of outsiders will come into the country and pay, you know, native Jamaicans less than they'll pay the the people that they bring in with them, um, which, you know, just, that's terrible. Um, and, and also, you know, full integrity on the art front, which I think a lot of people take for granted, you know, a lot of the, the artworks we see underwater now, they're perpetuating narratives that we already associate with the ocean, like mermaids and like a snorkeling mask or like a scuba helmet or like, you know, an oversized sea turtle and where those, you know, those things are lovely in what they are, but art, as I said already is about dialogue. I'm not, Mm. I'm not extending my dialogue and looking at another mermaid underwater. I want to see what somebody living today comes up with that's magical, fantastical and expands my consciousness when I engage with it. So all the artworks are made by emerging and established contemporary artists who are really thinking about the issues of today and the visual language around expressing that. Um, So I'm working on the fundraising for that. Um, And, you know, it's kind of in, in a journey around, you know, who who is the right fit for uh, helping me be able to make it happen. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And um, so can you leave us with one practical tip um, that you can leave with our listeners so that that they could properly implement today? It can be a practice also that you use every day if you want to. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing that's like on my mind these days that I'm that I'm thinking about on a daily and hourly basis is what am I saying to myself right now? I'm alone most of the time. So I have my own thoughts (laughs) circulating constantly. And it's just like stepping outside of the thoughts and looking at them. Like what story is running through my mind right now? And just like, you know, pulling the reins on that for a second helps me examine 
which narratives are running that are actually like damaging to my psyche and to my my well-being and you know pulling the reins on that and then retraining it so like for example i'm also working on a podcast right now called the power we hold yeah about my journey as a white ally um with my co-host Caleb Williams, who is a young black artist, and she's she's actually 20 years younger than me. Um, and I just I really love our dynamic. She's been very expansive for me. We're like co-mentors. You know, she's my mentor in um becoming a better ally, and I'm her mentor in the arts. Um but yeah, in working on this, like I've been a little stuck around the editing of the first episode and I recently realized that the pathways in my mind that keep circling are around I'm independent and I have to do everything myself. But that's not actually true. <laughs> there are plenty of people in my community that are eager and willing to help me with everything going on. So one thing that I did this week was I started asking for help where I thought I had to do everything. So like an example of that is um, I paid my laundromat to do my own laundry instead of me washing my own laundry, <laughs> which may sound like simple and stupid, but releasing that control and that independent, I do everything myself, like opened me up for just, you know, an extra $10. They do everything. Yeah. Um, you know, opened me up in those three hours that I would have spent, you know, running back and forth to the laundromat to like embody myself and like do yoga and, um, you know, enjoy my life and feel at peace and feel supported. That's, I think, probably the biggest part of that. Another is with the podcast, asking my cousin, who's an audio engineer <laughs> to do the editing. Like he's been, I've known he's an audio engineer for decades. Yeah. And for like three weeks now, I've been, you know, slaving over how am I going to edit this thing? Cause it needs actually a little more help than um, than it will in the future on this first episode. And like, of course he is the one to do it, but it, but it really took me stepping outside of my current thoughts and looking at them to understand that, Oh, I can ask for help in all these other areas that I wasn't even looking at. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great tip to be able to just observe what you're thinking. And without being in it, without being in yeah. the thought, be able to just observe what it is. And so I think that's just incredible. curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. That's amazing. And so where can our listeners find you if they want to know more about your work? Yes. So I've been teaching workshops with the Alchemist Kitchen. I have one coming up. I don't know the date right now, but within the next couple of weeks on sleep, another sleep hygiene workshop, yeah. which will be $15. Um, they also offer scholarships and my artwork, my personal work is on Instagram, uh, which is at Vanessa Alberry. Alberry is A-L-B-U-R-Y. And my website is also my name, VanessaAlberry.com. Coral Projects is at coral.projects on Instagram. And also the website is coralprojects.com. And then the Akashic Records readings, it's the Akashic Records reader. <laughs> on Instagram. And that's actually a really great place to look at testimonials that I've had from the 50 plus people that I've 
done readings for us so far and also where I like to um, handle the correspondence around around new co-clients. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. What a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for being with me, Vanessa. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you'd really have in your heart to share? Hmm. Well, <laughs> one is just that I adore you so much. I love the conversations that we're in every week. And I think it's, you know, really important on this journey of, you know, not only my spiritual path, but also my healing journey from the inner child wounds that we all experience to have other people as invested in the work as I am mm -hmm. to engage with. And, you know, you've been such a gift to me in that way and, and the other people in our group. Um, and I highly encourage, you know, everyone to, to put yourself out there on a limb and, and find the people that you need to connect to, like let go of the relationships that don't serve mm. your healing and your ascension and the path that you want to be on. Because when you let those go, all these new, more beautiful, more supportive and more impactful relationships show up. Like that's been my experience from quarantine. I made so many new friends yeah. <laughs> like in total isolation. It sounds counterintuitive, but yeah, I'm just so grateful to, to know you and to be, you know, on this life journey with you. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet of you. Likewise, likewise. And thank you, Vanessa, for being a part of the Hadassah Collective. I really appreciate your insight and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Claire. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you got some things to take away from our amazing guests' insight. If you did enjoy this episode, please subscribe and also leave us a review. And for more information on the Hadassah Collective, you can visit our Instagram page at Hadassah Collective. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode at the same time next week. And until then, have a wonderful week.